0: I'm Andrew D'Angelo, and alongside my co-host Jeremy Ryan, this is Plumbing on the Twelves. Today on Plumbing on the Twelves, a thought-provoking study in business, lifting the veil, the benefits of cost transparency, and the Greater Boston PCA Open House, conversations with Governor Baker.
1: So let's start with a little background about the organization. Uh, First of all, the Greater Boston Plumbing Contractors Association, or the PCA, also the association, it's a collection of about 50 to 60 uh, local 12 signatory contractors, and the association's probably over 100 years old now, incorporated 102 years ago and organized probably 20 years before that. So the contractors come together, and they sit on a number of very important back-end boards that help make the industry tick. So, for instance, uh, our contractors sit on the Joint Conference Board. The Joint Conference Board is the body that negotiates on behalf of all contractors in Boston with Local 12 to determine the wages, benefits, and work conditions in the collective bargaining agreement. Furthermore, it handles any disputes that may arise, uh, although I have to say, uh, with our relationship with Local 12, that is a very rare occasion indeed. Our contractors also sit on the Apprenticeship uh, and Education Fund, uh, ensuring that the funds are used uh, to educate our plumbers, journeymen, and apprentice plumbers to the best of our abilities. Uh, And they really run an incredible trade school here. Uh, It's not only probably the best in Massachusetts, but one of the best in the entire country. It's a great, great training center. Next, they sit on the benefit funds. This is the pension Healthcare and annuity funds, uh, making sure that we can provide the absolute best benefits for our plumbers in a responsible way. Furthermore, the PCA uh, provides a lot of education for our contractors. This could be continuing ed for their master's plumber's license, or it could be just basics to business education, it could be project management education, succession planning, future technology uses, etc. Whatever is pertinent to the industry at the time, uh, the PCA can provide... Uh, and does provide classes on those issues. Furthermore, uh, the PCA has some fantastic networking at our monthly meetings where we kind of give a state of the industry every month. We talk about, you know, lessons learned and just get to know the other players in the industry. Finally, the PCA runs a scholarship program for employees of plumbing contractors, uh, and last year we gave away over $50,000 to... 22 candidates. And that really makes a big difference to the families of the employees of our contractors.
0: The PCA is also engaged in advocating for legislative initiatives relating to fair labor practices, construction, plumbing, and general business. Recently, we've been looking at bills regarding wage theft, paid family and medical leave, as well as drain cleaning, wastewater treatment, and medical gas. The PCA also engages technical high schools, community groups, pre-apprenticeship programs, and various other city agencies and commissions to make sure careers in plumbing reach a diverse group from all walks of life.
1: So now that you know a little about the Greater Boston PCA, uh, why are we doing this podcast, Plumbing on the Twelves? We are hoping to throw out some intriguing uh, and progressive uh, business concepts based on studies. And, and really just put it to you. Do you think this is something that you can use to better your business? And maybe not. And maybe yes. Uh, and these are just the conversations that we're looking to have. Also, we're going to be having a, a guest speaker on each one of our episodes who's from a different part of our industry, whether it's from the substance and recovery programs or whether it's a vendor partner or a tool partner or a supply house. Uh, we're just going to Interview a lot of people on the back end that, that make our industry work, and we look forward to, um, to doing those episodes. So, today on
0: Plumbing in the Twelves, we decided to take a look at a thought provoking business study entitled Lifting the Veil The Benefits of Cost Transparency. This study looked at the effectiveness of being transparent to your customer in itemizing different costs of labor and materials and things of that nature. Jeremy, you dove more in depth into the study. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, Andrew. So this was a pretty cool study, uh, and it was it, it came to be completely by accident. Basically, there was an online wallet vendor who was selling a wallet in five different colors, and after a couple of months of subpar sales, the vendor decided to try to uh, post cost transparency to see if you know, hopefully, as a last ditch effort, he could. Um, you know, improve sales. Now, the problem is there was a technical error where instead of posting this uh, cost transparency on all five wallets, only three of the colors had the cost transparency uh, shown. Now, after a few more months of sales, there was a divergence in how many uh, wallets were sold of each color with the three that had the cost transparency posted selling way more than the wallets without the cost transparency posted. So Harvard University picked up on this, and they thought it was uh, pretty interesting, and they wanted to see if they could replicate the results. So they tried to replicate it with chicken noodle soup. So they went to two college dining halls, and they sold uh, chicken noodle soup at one dining hall, just posting the cost, and chicken noodle soup at another college dining hall, posting the breakdown of, you know, how much was labor per cup of chicken noodle soup, how much was the chicken, how much were the noodles, how much was uh, the shipping and the spoons and the bowls, etc. And it turned out that the one with the cost transparency sold 21% more than the one without it. And it wasn't just on the wallets, and it wasn't just on the chicken noodle soup. They then were able to replicate the same findings four more times. Okay. And so the question is, so why does posting costs in a transparent way lead to increased sales. So to find that answer, they pointed to a couple of tangential studies. One study was done about fudge, you know, that uh, chocolatey, tasty sweet treat that I personally love. I can't get enough of it, but apparently I would enjoy these fudges even more if I was told that they were made in a very expensive machine as opposed to an inexpensive machine. So
0: that actually brings up a good point, Jeremy, and it it kind of reminds me of of something I ran into the other day myself. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of people have had this same situation arise. It calls to mind the phrase brand loyalty. Folks are more likely to buy a food that is, is made by a national brand over a generic product. So I was at the supermarket the other day and I was looking to get my regular cereal choice and I was faced with the choice of having either the national brand or the same exact type of cereal uh, but made by the supermarket distributor. So I actually chose the national brand and I think that that goes to people thinking that there is a higher quality with premium products. So even though the process for making the generic supermarket brands may have been identical to the process of making the national brands, I was still inclined to take the national brand because it is what I have been comfortable with. And that's what I hear about in commercials, on TV, on the radio. Uh, And it gave me the illusion that that had a higher quality.
1: You know, I'm really glad that you used the word brand because that uh, we're going to come back to that in a minute. That that also plays a role in the study about brand. But I'd be curious, you know, if uh, we can extrapolate this transparency to these big brands and these uh, you know off-market brands. If that off-market brand was able to do a cost transparency thing, and they you you were able to see that they were not lower cost because they were skimping on the quality of their materials, or they were not skimping on the the cost of their labor and everything was identical and one was only charging you more for let's say profit, would that have made a difference in your mind about which cereal to to purchase? Yeah, so I think the idea of uh cost transparency definitely can play a role in, in brand versus off brand. Um, but I wanna go back to what you said about just branding, Andrew, uh because the other the other aspect of the study, um was they 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 want to look at a tangential study about um, how much people divulge? It goes back to like some psychological social uh, study that has deep roots and is widely accepted now. And basically, they find that if you divulge a certain amount about yourself, it can make you more likable, more attractive, more trustworthy. If you don't divulge enough. You can be found as secretive or standoffish. And if you divulge too much, uh, we all know those kind of people, that, that certainly doesn't lend itself to being very <laughs> very attractive either. But there is that 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 middle ground about divulging just enough to become attractive. And so what these researchers are hypothesizing is that the reason that uh, transparency works is it's because you're divulging just enough, hopefully just enough. You know, that that's up to how you execute it. But it then makes you, your brand more attractive, and that's what actually makes the brand loyalty. Is by by being a little bit more transparent in your costs, you can become just a little more transparent and gain some of that brand loyalty. So that was kind of what these hi- researchers hypothesized about why uh, transparency comes into play. So Jeremy, how do you think this
0: relates to the plumbing industry today?
1: I think about it mostly with service. You know, I, I'm sure that it plays a role in construction. Uh, that's a lot of. Bids and sometimes it's lowest bid, sometimes it's negotiated. So, with service, you know, you're going to someone's house and it's typically a demographic that is, you know, not an expert in the mechanical industry. And you go to try to sell them, let's say, a $2,000 water heater. And if you can break down that cost into, you know, what the materials actually cost and what you're paying your your person in wages and what the overhead costs and you know you talk about some of the training that we provide for our contractors and our employees um i think they believe that you're not trying to take advantage of them there's a trust that's built by being a little more transparent and there's probably a a certain amount of likelihood that is added to them being willing to uh, buy your product and, and just trusting you more even in the future service So that's kind of how I would run it back to the plumbing industry. I would totally agree. And I think most tradespeople are operating at
0: a disadvantage when it comes to uh, service work or residential work, uh, because quite often uh, the nature of the business is that you're dealing with a layperson. So an electrician is not going to hire an electrician to do electrical work on his or her own house. Likewise, a plumber won't hire another plumber to do plumbing work in their house. So the person that is hiring the plumber uh, knows nothing about plumbing. And the common misconception, unfortunately, is that tradespeople who come in will overcharge and try to take advantage of folks. So I think in order you know, to be more successful, if you're deliberate with, this is the reason it costs this much, people one will start to trust you more, but people two will also realize that, oh, okay, they're not just charging me only for the labor and maybe some materials, They're this. This is how it,
1: the breakdown comes, and that makes total sense to me. Yeah, you know, someone's, someone's back at the office estimating jobs. Someone's back at the office taking phone calls. There's trucks that you have to outfit with all the tools. Uh, there's more that goes into it, and I don't think the layperson sees that, and this will help them understand. But I do want to add that there was a, a caveat to the study, uh, and I'm going to call it the oversharing part. You know, we talk about people that don't share enough, that are a little bit secretive and guarded. I kind of think that's where most of our contractors are at. They they view their pricing as as like a state secret. Then there's people that divulge just enough to benefit. And that's, I think, where we're trying to get with this, this sweet spot of cost transparency. But then there's the people that over-divulge. And what I mean by that is, unfortunately, profit is still a dirty word. And when they ran this study, they ran it seven times and they were able to replicate the same results six times. The one time that they did not replicate it and that transparency actually hurt sales was when the customer believed that too much profit was being made and the profit was, they use the word salient, the profit was too salient in their transparency. So you want to divulge enough, but you don't want the customer to think you're taking advantage and you're, uh, you're gouging them and you're making so much profit off them. They don't, they don't want to feel... Uh, used. And so that was uh, six out of these seven studies, transparency helped, and one study it hurt. But there are some questions, Andrew, about the study, and that is what happens if you have two competitors who both are equally transparent? What happens then? What does transparency do in different industries? Like this didn't cover the plumbing industry, so we can only uh, extrapolate or guess as to what will happen here, but we don't know for sure. So those are those are some questions that are still up in the air this is not like a, a done deal It's not science this is this is just a, a study and, and some hypothesis
0: yeah I'd also be interested uh, to hear any of our contractors uh, if they've decided to use this if it worked if it didn't work if they've uh, just never tried it out and they've decided to maybe you know bring it into their business model uh, I'd like to hear some some feedback and, and and see what the industry has to say about this study. <laughs> So in honor of the Greater Boston PCA's new office in Braintree, the association had an open house this past October 16th, and we were fortunate enough to have Governor Baker stop by as as our guest of honor.
1: Yeah, Governor Baker, actually the most popular governor in America right now, so that was quite an honor, wasn't it?
0: Yes, it was a great honor to have him by the office, and he was able to speak to us and our contractors and partners in the industry regarding a few concerns that we have right now and moving forward. Uh, But it was a great event for us to be able to convey to the governor that the association as well as our partners are the experts in the industry and if any sort of change would come up in the future legislatively or with the plumbing board uh, that we would hope that he would consult the experts in the industry. So we were able to speak with the governor about apprentice unemployment regulation. Our apprentices in Local 12 uh, take day classes. So prior to this passing, um, the apprentices were not able to apply for unemployment with the state. But now, uh, as they take day classes, they can file for unemployment with the state, receive benefits as they're in class because they're not actually at work that week. So that's a great boon to our apprentices, so they're able to sustain themselves uh, while they're learning in school.
1: And you know what I would add to that, Andrew? Uh, Because this is a regulation that literally just took effect uh, within the last week, maybe two. Our contractors will start to see notifications from the uh, Department of Unemployment Insurance for apprentices that put in for unemployment. Uh, we do request that you approve that. They are now under this change in regulation entitled to it. And um, uh, if we do not approve it, there will be some serious holdups. And you know this is uh, stuff that they're entitled to. So we uh, encourage our contractors to make sure they approve those apprentice unemployment requests.
0: Yeah, we were also able to talk to the governor about the Paid Family and Medical Leave Act, which has been something that our association, as well as other trade associations in the area, and local trade unions have been pushing to change some very specific wording in the actual act itself. Jeremy, do you want to dive into some more detail about that?
1: Yeah, thank you, Andrew. So this is a pretty technical change that we're pushing for, but just because it's a small and technical change doesn't mean that it doesn't have some serious potential impacts on our industry. And I'm talking millions and millions of dollars. Basically, what the law is asking us to do uh, in its current iteration is to continue to pay health care benefits for our employees even when they are out on paid family medical leave. Uh, this is an issue for a few reasons. The first one is what we call the federal preemption issue, which is that federal law actually prevents us uh, as a multi-employer industry where we have many employers with many employees that we all pay into the same benefit plan. Uh, It's called the Taft-Hartley or multi-employer plan. Uh, Multi-employer plans are forbidden by law, by ERISA law, to collect money or benefits for employees that are not actually working those hours. Uh, they they can't take hourly contributions, and so Massachusetts is directly at odds with federal law, creating a huge issue for us. And so uh, we would like to comply with the law. Uh, we are actually unable to, so we're looking for a technical change that allows us to play and provide the best benefits. Because that, frankly, that's what our contractors do. They provide the best benefits in town. That's that's what they pride themselves on is is being the best employers. And so we're not we're not trying to fight that. We're we're just trying to get to be able to do it in a way that's compliant with all laws, right? The other issue is that we already provide these benefits for employees that are out on leave. It's built into the healthcare care plan that we already have. And by making us continue to pay the costs when they're out, even though we're already providing the benefit, it basically makes our employers double pay for something that we're already providing. So whereas we can just adjust our current plan by, let's say, one cent or two cents an hour they're going to make us pay $11 an hour for every hour they're out. That's a significant difference. Uh, and I don't think the law cares so much about how we pay. I think they care about how the employee can take it. And right now they can take that paid family medical leave. So uh, it's a small technical change, but uh, it's quite an uphill battle. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, the legislators and regulator, regulators will come around to the, the changes that we're looking for.
0: So another another thing to remember is that the partnership between the building trade unions and the contracting community is that we are the standard bearer for livable wages, being able to retire with dignity, and having safe work conditions on the job. So rather than punish our community for what we do, we're just hoping that we can continue to do the good work
1: that we've been doing all along. Absolutely. You know, I, it's worth mentioning that The law as it is says that you only have to keep contributing to these benefits if you even provided them in the first place. So what does that mean? That means that employers are going to be incentivized not to have benefits because then they don't have to continue to contribute. So someone who provided no health care for their employees now has $0 an hour uh, when their people are out versus contractors who paid There or who provide great health care for their employees are uh, doubly punished again, and so it's really just a um, a, a real challenge for the the good guys that are really trying to give their employees a, a good wage.
0: So, overall, this was a great event and a great opportunity for our contracting community and our local Union 12 to speak with the governor about how we are the standard of excellence in the industry and the current. Massachusetts plumbing industry and the current Uniform State Plumbing Code have provided excellent clean drinking water in healthy sanitation conditions for a very long time. And we would hope that if anything were to change in this industry, that the plumbing industry done by plumbers and plumbing contractors would be the first people to be consulted.
1: Absolutely. It seems to make a certain amount of sense that if you're going to make a change to the plumbing, he has the plumbing industry. And uh you know, I, I think the governor was receptive to that line of thinking. In his words, that's a no-brainer, which I kind of love that he was so blunt about that. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> he's extremely receptive to our issues, which was great. Uh he's been a great supporter of our industry for the last I guess it's been 8 years that he's been in office and um you know, based on this event, I think he's going to be a supporter of our industry for many years to come.
0: That does it for the first episode of Plumbing on the Twelves. Thanks for joining us this week. We would love to have your feedback, so shoot us an email at jeremy at greaterbostonpca.com or andrew at greaterbostonpca.com. Plumbing on the Twelves is a co-production of GBPCA Studios and the Greater Boston Plumbing Contracts Association, recorded at the Greater Boston PCA office in Braintree, Massachusetts. Produced and edited by Jeremy Ryan and me, Andrew D'Angelo.